Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. This is Sound and Vision from KEXP in Seattle. I'm Emily Fox. Coming up in 30 minutes, we'll hear this week's installment of Northwest Classics and discuss the band, The Sonics. Without The Sonics, I don't think there ever would have been grunge. But first, I have a fascinating man I want to introduce you to. So he grew up dealing drugs and involved in gangs in Seattle. He's a hip-hop artist who used to go by the name D-Black. Yeah, everybody is black again. Please knew how to shit in the team with him. He now somebody... goes by the name Nassim Black. He lives in Jerusalem now and has converted to Hasidic Judaism. When I met up with him for our chat this week, he rolled in with a very specific outfit Hasidic Jews wear. The long black coat and the, you know... I have a black vest, I have a black hat on, which is a what we call a beaver hat. So it's definitely not a top hat. It's called a beaver hat. It's called a beaver hat. Black is still making music these days, but the themes in his music have changed. I know what you've been thinking. The black Abe Lincoln just wanted you to be aware. Signing off as Mr. Black, Hitler's worst nightmare. Yeah. I talked with Nassim Black about his life story and journey through religions and music. We started off by talking about what life was like for him growing up in Seattle. It's something he laid out pretty explicitly in a song off his first full-length album. The song is called This Is Why. I grew up thinking that life was just a game. I seen moms and pops both pushing cocaine. Naturally birthed in the game. Yeah, I seen dope. I'm waking up in the night seeing kilos spread across the coffee table. Dangerous shit was in me before I left the cradle. I'm still able to remember old times. Witnessing your dad whooping ass with a nine. Was always taught the right thing. But I like what I've seen Gunfights, smoke weed, push weight, nice things uh, It seemed like it was a process to me The whole made sure that it was processed to me So, wow. so <laughs> what is it like to hear that song now? You've gone through a lot of changes You don't, <laughs> you don't even understand I couldn't believe that Like I'm sitting here listening to that I remember those lyrics even, you know what I mean? But no, that's like uh, It's a very interesting thing It's definitely a time capsule type feeling And to some degree I almost feel like I'm listening to somebody else. Um, definitely brings back a lot of memories. A lot of memories. I mean, it, it was a totally different life for you. Uh, yeah, that's Jake One on that track, by the way. So, <laughs> you know, um, that's a Seattle native. And, you know, um, that was uh, definitely uh, descriptive of of my childhood, you know what I'm saying? You don't even need the interview now. You got the answers right there. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about, you know, being in a household where you're where you're seeing, you know, parents push drugs right. at a very young right. age. Right. Um, you know, later on in the song, I think you talk about being involved in gangs. Right, right. Um, you know, what was life for you like growing I mean, up in Seattle? definitely that, you know, I was, you know, I definitely seen those things growing up as a kid and it's just a natural thing that that becomes a part of who you are if you grow up in such an environment you know so I think the first thing for me was like you know after being in a household like that and sort of like pushing things to the next level you know obviously I started doing myself you know what I'm saying Dylan I didn't do anything white thank God I didn't do anything white this is when now weed is not such a big deal you know what I'm yeah, saying yeah it's legal now <laughs> it's not, now it's legal you know um, but um, 
I definitely started to get into that game and start to move towards that way. And I was running with, you know, GD, uh, Gangster Disciple Nation. And, you know, um, it was a very, very interesting um, thing for me, you know, even now that I look at it, because even back then I always felt like I'm only trying to be what I'm supposed to be. And it was sort of like for me now that I'm looking at it and I feel I have a whole different perspective. Back then, I remember that I was still very conscious of there could be something more. You know what I'm saying? So I was very still conscious. I was cognizant of some type of growth that I wanted to achieve, but I didn't know what it was. I couldn't make out in my my head what it was, but I definitely do remember being, you know, conscious of it. And how old were you when you put out that record? I put out that record. I was 19 years old. 19. And I was 19. <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, now I'm a young 33, but, you know, so. I mean, you, your parents were rappers right. in, in what, you know, some consider to be Seattle's first hip-hop groups. Right, um, right. Emerald Street Boys. Even, even Mix himself. I sat with Mix a lot at his house. He said it himself. I He said, I used to tell your dad and those guys that wasn't going to last. The rap stuff wasn't going to last. You know what I mean? He <laughs> said Mix they was the first ones on it. That came from Mix himself. And, and Sir Mix-a-Lot was actually recently on a Macklemore track uh-huh. giving a shout-out to Emerald Street Boys. Ah, that's good, that's good. <laughs> so that's that was good. your dad, and then your mom uh, was in a, in a group called Emerald Street Emerald Girls. Emerald Street Girls, yeah. Um, yeah. And then your grandparents were musicians and played yeah. with Ray Charles and Quincy right. Jones. Right. They both right. have connections to Seattle. Right. So what was your exposure to music growing up? I recorded uh, my first record with Vitamin D, also to Seattle native, um, when I was 13 years old. So that was the first thing that kind of, you know, when I, when I was 13 and I did that first record with Vitamin D, and my uncle RC is also a producer, so I recorded with him later on that year. That was like the beginning of... Like, I'm doing this for real. You know what I mean? And you were how old again? I was 13 when that first happened. 13. Yeah. That's 13. amazing. Yeah, I'm a veteran. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a 20-year vet, at least in, in that regard. And so by the time I was 15, you know, we had, uh, <laughs> we were, we had nights. You know, the label I was with, Sporting Life, you know, before, you know, before I became part owner of it. But I was just, you know, another artist on the roster. We had nights at the Safari Club, which used to be in Columbia City. So I was going into the clubs, you know, already at 15 years old, having to go in with security and then be walked out. You know, I was performing at clubs for years before I can even go into one. You know what I mean? So... I was doing this for a long time. That's exciting. So yeah. we're going to talk about, you know, your your journey through through religion. I mean, I understand at one point you were a Muslim, then you you were also converted to Christianity as a teenager. Right. Can you talk about just those parts of your those life? Those parts of my life. So my grandfather was a Sunni Muslim. He came to live with us when I was young, around eight years old or something like that. And, um, and you know, I think more than anything, it was just he was a very he was very influential in my life because I hadn't spent so much time with him. So it was just cool to be able to have a grandfather, you know, even in the picture. He had spent most of his time in prison. He was from Southside Chicago, and you know, he you know he had a rough life. And um, so I think he converted to Islam when he was in prison. And so by the time he had come to live with us, uh, temporarily, he had already knew Arabic. He already was, you know, praying five times a day. So I, he, you know, obviously pulled me to join him. He would take me to mosque with him. And then shortly after that, unfortunately, he ended up back in prison. He had, the, he had a, vi- a violation of uh, 
the probation violation. And from that point on, if anybody would ask me, I would have told them I was Muslim. But I wasn't very busy with the Quran and inside the sewers. I wasn't, you know. Uh, but if anybody had told me, so outside of be- between that and gangbanging, you know what I'm saying, that was my religion. <laughs> and then when I was 13, um, my boy Fado, Fado Luciano, who was a very, very good friend of mine, also Seattle native, was... Um, the one who got me interested in going to this hip-hop program, he knew I was into music. I just recorded with Vitamin D and, you know, my Uncle R.C., and he was like, you got to come to this hip-hop program at the Union Gospel Mission. So I started going to the Union Gospel Mission. When I got to the Union Gospel Mission, I met a man by the name of John Reed, um, who was like a big brother, you know, slash like father figure for me. And I think it was there was the first time that I really— was able to step out of that environment that I was like at in home, you know what I'm saying, and see healthy relationships and see people just, you know, happy to see you and help you grow to be who you are. Um, so I was very, very—and nobody was very pushy at first. And then I ended up going to, like, a uh, camp with them, and that was, like, they did the missionary stuff, you know. It was, so it was very, very uh, beautiful experience even for me then. And— um, and I definitely, at least for the next few years, was very, very strong, strongly involved with the Union Gospel Mission and, and things like that. And so once you converted to Christianity, how did that impact how you approached music? I mean, like, were you still rapping about, you know, drugs and women at that point? Or did you feel like you had to rap about that stuff because that's what was marketable for rap? No, I think the first thing was, like, no, I definitely cleaned my act a lot in terms of music. Uh, none of that was going on. It was all positive stuff or rapping about rapping, you know. That was as far as it went. And then I want to say when I was around um, 17, 17, almost 18, um, a demo of mine got to a uh, A&R at Virgin, at Virgin Records. So That's I started a having this guy. That was a big company <laughs> at the time. So I was like super excited about it and everybody around me was also. Um, so we were having conversations back and forth or whatever. And what was big in rap at that time was 50. 50 had just dropped. I think it was 2003, something like that. And 50 had dropped. And it was like... We're talking about 50 cents. 50 cents. Cent. Mm-hmm. 50 cents, of course. Hey, there could be another 50, but that's for sure. <laughs> you know, uh, 50 cents had just dropped. And his influence on rap at that time was actually very big. You know what I'm saying? It was almost like N.W.A. all over again. You know what I'm saying? Everybody was doing more poppy stuff like that. When 50 came, it definitely shaped the industry in a way to where it's like everybody had to pick up their gangster, you know? And so one of the things that the label had asked me, um, you know, before the deal, because we were just trading songs going back and forth, uh, was if I could, you know, make it a little tougher. They referenced 50 and just like, you know, you don't got to go all out, but if you, you know, you know, you're not cursing, for instance, you could throw in a word. Or and I was like, you know, no way. I got values. I'm this, <laughs> I'm that, you know? And uh, they sent over a proposal. I'll never forget. It was a proposal and... It had half a million dollars on it, and I started cursing left and right after I got that paper. <laughs> it was like— So you signed—, you signed. I didn't end up—so this is what happened. So what ended up happening was after they sent over the proposal, I sent in harder, tougher records and stuff like that, and it was just a period I didn't hear anything. And then all of a sudden, they got back in touch, and it was a back and forth between them and my management. And um, in between this time, my mother passed away. My mother died of an overdose, 
And I ended up going to New York after that because I had an aunt who was just like, you know, you should do your music thing. And she she didn't know how she could help me. She knew I was into music. So I went after that to New York, and I knew I had the version conversation. It was still happening. Um, I was there with, I think, Ricardo Frazier. I went to Slim Shady Records. I went to Atlantic. I went to um, Dash Music Group. So I went there and met with Clark Kent, who found both Biggie and Jay-Z. And he wanted to do a deal. Dash didn't end up wanting to do the deal. Everybody pulled out. By the time I got back to Virgin, back to Seattle after that, Virgin also pulled out, and they didn't want to do a deal. So we were left with this record, this new harder persona, which definitely, by the time I started making those records, didn't reflect where I was in my life. Mm-hmm. But by the time I was finished, I was so confused because. It only pulled me into a nature I was very, very familiar with already, you know what I mean? And sort of sometimes, like, I felt like it pulled me towards a lifestyle that I was maybe living before I started to change. You're back again. Yeah. yeah. And also on, on, you know, your first full-length record, you have a song about your mother. Yeah, yeah. It's Is it Secret S- Place? Secret Place, yeah, Secret Place. Um, can I play a little clip of that? Yes, for sure. Tell me more about this song. I mean, how, what kind of impact did that have on you, after, you know, once your, when your mother passed away? Um, that song, I think I wrote maybe three or four days after um, it happened. So everything was very, very fresh. And the impact was, you know, even now I've been thinking about it over the last few days because I've, I've done a new song recently about it. And I think it definitely was a feeling and the pain that, I wouldn't have wished on my worst enemy. It was so sudden and so unexpected um, that it was one of those reality moments of just like, who are you? What are you? Where are you going? You know what I'm saying? And and I felt like it was one of those things that, you know, that song, like I said, was three, four days after of me just running. I felt like I just had to run because if I would have sat and I would have thought about it, I'd be, you know, mentally paralyzed. You know what I mean? It was very tough for me. My mother at the time was my best friend. I would talk to her about everything um, and all the time. So to have her immediately taken away from me, you know, and I had some problems. Even, you know, religiously, I was trying to figure out, like, listen, hold on. I see people around with their parents 50, 30, 60 years. I had 19 years with my mother. So I'm asking, like, is it really fair, you know? So it was a very tough time for me, but it was definitely impactful and made me, and instead of, I guess, to something becoming angry, it sort of put me in a place to uh, one of more compassion, and I guess I was a little bit more open spiritually at that point afterwards. Yeah. I'm speaking um, with Nassim Black. You might know him as D. Black back in his rapping days when he was in Seattle. He has since converted to Judaism and lives in Jerusalem. So why did you decide to convert to Judaism? So I think the thing about Judaism was now— you know, like I mentioned before, both Islam and Christianity, to some degree, they have a personal 
expectation of themselves to include more members because that's a major part of God's work as far as as far as they're concerned, uh, which is understandable. But I think the thing about Judaism was one of those things where you had to chase after. So if I could explain it in any type of way, it's sort of like Every guy wants the girls that, you know what I'm saying? They have to chase after. I, I hate to compare it that way. You know, Lahavdil and people that know what Lahavdil means, they understand. But it's not the same thing, but it's sort of like, you know, Judaism for me was was the product of my own searching with nobody else involved. There was nobody else around. I got to open up texts on my own, and I was sitting you know, eight hours a day between a Quran and a and a, and three, four different versions of of the of, of the Christian Bible. I ordered the you know the Jewish Bible, and and I was literally spending that much time. I was fasting, going three days every week without food, going out praying, crying, just trying to find the truth uh, for me. I would say, you know, everybody has their own truth, but this was the truth for me that started to resonate. And I, you know, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood, Sewer Park. I lived in, you know, for most of my life and didn't have any relationship with, you know, my Jewish neighbors. You know, I used to walk through a synagogue every, you know, every day to go to school. And I used to use the synagogue parking lot for, you know, riding my bike, but I wasn't so connected at all. So I had, you know, questions about it. You know what I'm saying? If, you know, Jesus is Jewish, you know. What's, you know, what's the harm? Let me let me look into things. And one of the biggest things for me, like, was the, you know, the fact that it wasn't condemning people to hell. You know what I'm saying? Judaism almost never so busy with the afterlife as much. You know what I'm saying? And other people's like, that's like their thing. It's like the, the afterlife, you know what I'm saying? But it's about what you're doing right now. You know what I'm saying? And the fact that it wasn't saying that, well, if you're Muslim, you can't go to heaven. Or if you're Christian or if you're not, you don't go to Judaism doesn't deal with that at all. It says, in fact, they can have the same place in heaven as as a Jewish person, but a lot of people don't know about Judaism, actually. So that made more sense that, you know, God was more open than being closed to where, you know, because what about all the people in the world that never even heard of your God? So to some degree, it answered a lot of those questions for me that uh, made it seem like it was a much more viable, uh, much more um, truthful, you know, path for me. So you had been living in Seattle um, right. up until 2016, and then you and your wife and kids moved to Jerusalem. Right. So move right. across the world right. to the Holy Land. Right. Why move all the way to Jerusalem? I think, you know, it was just a place where you could go and immerse yourself in spirituality. You know what I'm saying? And not even, I mean, you think about it. I think I look at Jerusalem. I mean, Mecca is Mecca, right? So I can't say, but it's definitely a spiritual house, you know, for not only Jews, for Christians, you know, Muslims are there. So that just gives a, that gives a hint to the amount that a person could grow spiritually in the place that everybody wants a piece of it, you know what I'm saying, for that regard. So for me, I felt like the best way for us after making that decision was to be able to go and immerse ourselves over there into the land and, and to the culture and to breathe in the air over there, you know. So after I went to go visit, I think in 2013, it was like, it was a no-brainer. I didn't know how I was going to convince my wife to move there, but I for sure knew that I was trying to go back there, you know. So, um, and we did it. So we've been there four years now. And what was it like when you arrived? I mean, I'm sure there aren't a lot of Jews in Jerusalem that look like you. <laughs> what, <laughs> did that, what did that feel like for you and how were you perceived? The truth is, is that prior to coming to Judaism as a whole, I, I wasn't aware that there were other Jews of color. By the time I got to Israel, 
I knew what was up, you know. So, in fact, it's a very interesting thing because when you get to, you know, people that are not exposed to Judaism or they come from other parts, you think Jews are white. This is what you think, you know, till you get there and then you see Taimani, you see Mizrahi Jews, you see Jews of Ethiopia, you see, you know, so Israel definitely was a place of culture. So by the time I got there, I was already famous in Israel by the time I landed. So it was a massive like now they already do this for people when they're moving and they make a big deal when you're moving. But for me, they called me ahead and said, listen, there's going to be cameras there. So <laughs> whatever are you, they told me one, it was more than one. All right. So I had interview after interview. My voice was completely gone my wife had to give the interviews and but i stood next to her you know like you know i approved this message type of thing and they're playing my song in the airport and there's a group of teenage girls following me playing my song on there and half of them were ethiopian you know what i'm saying so it was like you know it was like uh i felt like it was you know when uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, <laughs> got to Africa. I think to fight George Floyd. They sing Ali Buma. It was like a very, I was welcome with love. So I was, you know, I didn't, I wasn't expecting it at all. But it definitely was uh, quite the party when we moved there. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, now that you've, you know, you've converted to Judaism, you live in Jerusalem. How has your relationship to music changed? You know what? It's very interesting. I think it's only been strengthened. In in ancient times in the Jewish temple, uh, there's no music, there's no party. You know what I'm saying? So they, they there was singing going on in the Holy Temple, you know, seven days a week. So there's this it's you know, my I think Judaism holds really in enhanced my, you know, I'm saying my love of music and my ability to to take it to different places that I probably wouldn't even have done before. So and I feel like because of the current shift in rap, uh, even today becoming even more melodic and different things, I felt like everything just sort of swung into my arena. You know, everything I was always afraid to do because I didn't know how people would perceive it or whatever, I feel like a whole lot more comfortable now. And I feel like being in that space of, of being in Jerusalem and all that, m- my spiritual investment and, and my, my time, at least the time I allocate to it, is so involved that I don't feel like it's detracting at all and only enhancing my, my ability to make great music and to be involved in it. Well, I, I watched um, a Vice clip about you, right, um, right? You know this video clip, and in it, you you sang as part of a wedding. Like right. your gigs now are weddings. I mean, are you performing a lot in public? I do, I do, I do, I do actual concerts, and then every once in a while, you get called for like to do weddings, which is awesome because that's like that's something you know. Back in the day, nobody was ever calling D Black to come do a wedding. You know what I'm saying? So um, usually it's like a second dance. You know, you do two dances. So the, by the second dance, when they want the concert, I come in and I and I and I do a concert. So it was very very fun for me. So yeah, I played a wedding there. So you recently released um, a new album. Um, it came out in 2019. I understand uh, you're releasing new music. Right. Can you talk about a song or two that that you've worked on recently that kind of showcases the change that has happened in your life, or maybe the change that that you know musically? And you know, we heard some of your earlier stuff earlier in this interview. Mm-hmm. You know, how has your sound changed, or just what you're singing about? Right. I think it's definitely. Um, what you're singing about because I have this like thing where I'm I'm juggling, you know, 
so much because of the different audiences that are listening to me. You know what I'm saying? There's people listening because they're, they're waiting to hear D Black. And then there's other people listening like, wow, this Nisim, this is an amazing story. I can't wait to hear this, you know. So um, I definitely feel like, you know, a lot of things about my faith and personal growth and perseverance definitely has, um, since it's been so much of a part of my life, it definitely comes out in the music. So I feel like that's much more of it than just like rapping about drugs, guns and money because, you know what I'm saying, we're supposed to, you know what I mean? So um, I definitely feel like, you know, I've always said that if I have two or three minutes of somebody's attention, you know what I'm saying? I'm going to try to make the best of it that I possibly can, you know what I mean? If you sit down and have a conversation with somebody and they're just telling you about how much drugs they take or how many guns they have, and I'm not playing. Each person has the hustle. I'm not against anybody else. I'm just saying that my personal responsibility is to be able to give the other person something, you know what I mean, and to receive something, you know what I mean? So um, that's just sort of how... You know, I go in with that mindset whenever I'm writing music, you know. Well, let's talk about a song or two that kind of showcases the shift. Like, wow. you know, I heard the song um, Eight Flames. Right, Eight Flames. Which yeah. I'm assuming is about Hanukkah. Yeah, it was a Hanukkah, Hanukkah song, yeah, and for it, sure. And it's super catchy, so let's just take a <laughs> listen here. So we make it eight days, eight nights. We call it eight flames, eight nights. We light a flame for the summer cold. We light a flame for the summer cold. You know, so we've got a song like Eight Flames. Uh, right. You know, is there another song that you want to share, you know, that, that you love the message that you're telling? I think the new song um, that we're releasing actually on the 31st called uh, Motherland Bounce, uh, which is, I think it sums up everything. You know, one of the biggest misconceptions that people get is like, you know, um, from my perspective is they don't really know how to handle is like, okay, became Jewish, she's Hasidic. Does that mean he thinks he's white now? Or you know what I'm saying? Or does that mean or you know, or you know, on the on the on the other end it's just like, you know, well now he's one of us, so he's not really he's not really black. Can we call him black, you know? So this one I wanted to put out like a very, very um forward message of saying like yes I'm Jewish but I'm still black and I'm proud. And I feel like it's a message that that on on some level I wanted to I what I wanted to do is be able to give strength to really, you know, what I'm saying both communities, which is very interesting that they're releasing the song now it wasn't planned, but it's a lot of strife going on especially back east coast uh between the Jewish community, African American community and to be able to have done this video with other African Americans dressed in Hasidic uh, Hasidic garb and to be in Harlem, you know what I'm saying, broad daylight in the middle we shot this with a crew uh, to shoot this video and for the song to be coming out at this time, I think is just like so called for, you know what I mean? Because we we forget that, you know what I'm saying, together, you know what I'm saying, with Dr. King and Avram Heschel, we're walking those streets together, you know, talking about uh, and screaming for civil rights. So I feel like it'll give strength to both the African-American community and the Jewish community to to be who you are no matter what anybody says or what they're going to think about it and be happy to be you. So I think that that's the main, main, uh, main message of this song. Black is beautiful. This going to be the motherland hit. Yeah. 
So you said there is a conflict, especially in the East, between um, Jews and the in the black population. Yeah. What's going on there? I mean, it's just been, you know, especially over the last few, you know, the eight days of Hanukkah, I think there was only one day where there wasn't an attack on, on a Jewish person uh, from stabbings, the the shooting in New Jersey at a, at a kosher deli market and just several attacks on the streets. You know, pointed at Jews from from, you know, the African-American community primarily. Um and unfortunately, it's not everybody, obviously, you know what I'm saying? And to say that it's it is it would be would be nuts. But it's definitely something that's been alarming. And so it's led to a lot of, you know, protests and peace, peace marches over back east, one of which I think I'll be going to on Times Square next week. Um, but it's been something that's been very, very tough to kind of like swallow and be both African-American and Jewish, you know what I'm saying? It's definitely everybody's going like, well, what do you think about this? You know what I'm saying? So it's been very, very hard for me, you know what I'm saying, to see the see the fighting where there's been so much history that should actually be connecting and figuring out ways to talk about how to move forward and, and, and team up together on social issues than to be fighting, you know what I'm saying? almost doesn't make sense at all, you know what I mean? So... Um, it's been a very tough time, for me at least. That was my conversation with Nassim Black. We talked about transforming from a rapping, gang-banging drug dealer in Seattle to musician and Hasidic Jew in Jerusalem. He'll be performing as part of Lemud's Seattle Festival. It's happening tonight at Bellevue College. And by the way, if you missed parts of this conversation, we'll be posting it on the next Sound and Vision podcast, which drops on Tuesday. I can even buy tricks. I'm no longer on wick. EBT car rip in my passport lip. Stamp like a notary from every country that I went. Ain't a country like this from the others you've been sent. Black is beautiful. This gon' be the motherland hit. Yeah. Yeah. We gon' play it loud until they feel it. Yeah. Yeah. We gon' blow the roof up off the building. Yeah. Yeah. We gon' play that motherland bounce. Check it out now, motherland bounce. Check it out now, motherland bounce. We baba. Yeah. Yeah. I used to run with BGD yeah. 
I dropped the B and put a O after the G. Yep. Six points, still big up King D. In the synagogue, camouflage, but I can't wipe the skin off. I'm proud of it, it's loud a bit, but I'm not trying to crisscross. I done made it this far, hold it all in my heart. I hold my breath and brace myself when they take their socks off. Ain't no monkey business, cause ain't no monkeys in here. I know what you've been thinking, the black A blinking. Just wanted you to be aware. Signing off, it's Mr. Black, Hitler's worst nightmare, yeah. Yeah, we gon' play it loud and till they feel it, yeah. yeah. We gon' blow the roof up off the building, yeah. yeah. We gon' play that motherland bounce, check it out now, motherland bounce, check it out now, motherland bounce, we baba. Yeah. We gon' play it loud and till they feel it, yeah. yeah. We gon' blow the roof up off the building, yeah. yeah. We gon' play that motherland bounce, check it out now, motherland bounce, check it out now, motherland bounce, we baba. This is Sound and Vision on KEXP. We continue our series called Northwest Classics, where we look back at notable albums that came out of this region. Today, KEXP's Marco Collins talks with music writer Charles R. Cross about the 1965 debut album from a band from Tacoma. They were called The Sonics, and the album was called Here Are The Sonics. Marco starts off the conversation by discussing how influential they were. Some people will have called them the godfathers of grunge. I know they influenced a ton of the early 70s punk, or late 70s punk, rather. Uh, What's your take on the Sonics? Well, I used to edit a magazine in Seattle called The Rocket, and that was Seattle's music magazine for 25 years. So we came after the Sonics, way after. Sonics record comes out in 65. The band essentially is falls apart by 68. So it's a very short period that the Sonics were together. But when I got to Seattle, there was a basketball team called the Sonics. And everybody in music, though, people kept telling me, go check out this record by the Sonics. And eventually I found a copy of Here Are the Sonics at a used record store on Capitol Hill. And I got to tell you, it just changed my world. The idea that these guys were from Seattle or from the Northwest, Puget Sound more specifically, the music on that record... I have always argued, is kind of the lost great Seattle music. So eventually I tracked them down for The Rocket, which is where this story is going. No one had done a story on these guys for 30 years. And I tracked them down and talked to them and did a cover story of The Rocket on the history of the Sonics. And everyone I talked to in any Seattle band said, yeah, the Sonics were the thing. That includes Mark Arm. Kurt Cobain owned a copy of the album. I mean, a lot of the guys in the Seattle grunge cite the idea of the Sonics as something that that greatly influenced the quote-unquote Northwest sound. So my story is this. Jerry Rosalie of the Sonics wrote me a thank you letter that I put on the wall of my office. And when people walked in my office, there were gold and platinum records by a lot of big bands. There were other memorabilia around our office. Every Seattle musician who ever came in my office was most impressed by the fact that Jerry Rosalie of the Sonics had actually written me a thank you letter. That, I still have it on my wall, it's faded, but Rosalie the Scream on the Witch. And on Psycho. The approach that he took to rock before punk rock had ever even been invented. The guys in the Sonics told me, I don't even know if this story is completely true, but that they would stick pencils in the the cones of their speakers to give it a more distorted sound. 
you don't actually need to do that to make the sound be distorted. But there is a rawness, an absolute just pure punk angst to the music of the Sonics that in some ways hasn't been bested. You know, punk music happens 15 years later. You know, Seattle grunge happens 25 years later. But all of that, there are elements in the Sonics. This record was a hugely influential record. Sold almost nothing. Was released on an independent label called Etiquette Records, which was run by Buck Ornsby, a guy that had been in the band The Wailers, who also released stuff on Etiquette. Right. It sold very, very few copies. But it is a record that, and now it's been reissued by hipster labels like Norton, and it's come out and people have heard it. But I'll tell you... Two people I know who love this record and cite it as it would absolutely would one is Little Steven of Bruce Springsteen's band, the E Street Band, and a career as Little Steven. Robert Plant. You know, Mark Arm. Touch me, I'm sick. Kurt Cobain. The people influenced by the Sonics, you know, go on and on in every punk band. The Ramones. There was nothing like it when it came out. There was nothing like it when it came out. Now, the only thing close, there is a documentary that came out that talks about Rumble by Link Ray. Rumble by Link Ray is an instrumental that was banned because people thought it would inspire juvenile delinquency. An instrumental. How is that going to make people juvenile delinquent? In some ways, that's also a little bit of the story of the Sonics. The Sonics, wherever they played, parents were afraid to lock up their daughters because this music, the perception of it, was that it was dirty and nasty and sexy and, and somehow wrong. And that's why it's so good. They they did capture a dirtiness to rock and roll in a way. You know, Psycho is just this guy screaming. I mean, it's it's the it's the theme song to Western State Mental Hospital. The scream that Rosalie brought to these songs were were really unbelievable. I had the occasion. This record came out in 1965. As I said, it sold very few copies. But the Sonics kind of had a second life. They are still touring. There's only one original guy still touring. It's a very complicated history. This record, awesome, track it down. But what happened is the Sonics sold their name, bizarrely, to somebody else. So in the late 60s and early 70s, you had a different albums put out by a band, The Sonics, that had nothing to do with the original Sonics. Then you had the professional basketball game come in. So if you're going to name a band something confusing, either pick The Sonics. The weird part is their label mate are The Wailers, who forever got confused with Bob Marley's band. Right. Um, well, there was a lot of borrowing going on at that time. There was a lot this of borrowing. Record, there still is. Right. But, but, but there, the record was mostly covers, right? It was mostly covers. Yeah. Which was the thing to do back then. Right. 
R&B and everybody covers, covered Louie Louie. Right. Though many people argue that the Sonics have the greatest version of Louie Louie. So this record came out in 1965. I wrote that piece on them in the 80s, got to know them, and then the Sonics had, a, bizarrely, a, a second life. So I was in the studio with the Sonics back when they were almost all the original guys, maybe 10 years ago. And I got to tell you, in my entire career, it was one of the most chilling hair on the back of my... So I walk in the studio. I know these guys. They, they, you know, no one else is there. It's them and me. They're, they're not a big highfalutin band. But Jerry Rosalie sits down at the organ. He starts playing... To hear Jerry Rosalie at the organ, he's playing those chords, and it's so this swirly sound. And I said, what's the key to your sound? He said, there's a magnetone amp that he's using, and that's the swirl. That's the distortion. That's where this is all at. But at that point, Jerry must have been 70, and when he started screaming... It still was like, oh my God, this is this is the the stuff. The legacy of this band is just simply that without the Sonics, I don't think there ever would have been grunge. The idea that a Northwest band could release independent records inspired sub pop. The fact that a Northwest band could put a record out that was so raw. They don't like to call themselves punk. To these guys, punk means entirely... Punk in the 60s does not mean punk in the 70s. Punk in the in the 60s means you're a greaser, so to speak. It's not as anti-establishmentarianism as the, the is late 70s punk men in England and, and CBGBs. Talk about The Witch, specifically. Um, they're, they're arguably the best song they ever... Release the biggest song they well, ever released. Well, actually, that's not necessarily true. The Sonic songs that more people are going to know than any other song is "Have Love Will Travel," which is also a cover, also written bizarrely by Richard Berry, who wrote "Louie Louie," also written as an R and B song, not as a rock song. So was "Louie Louie." The original version is kind of calypso, but the Sonics had heard this song and they cover "Have Love Will Travel." And they had a second life to their career because Have Love Will Travel was featured in a Land Rover commercial. So millions of people heard that song that didn't hear The Witch. But you're right. The Witch is the biggest song. Now, it never was a hit single. It was played on the radio in Seattle. It was played on the radio in a few other select markets. Bizarrely, Pittsburgh and Seattle were pretty much the only places to really embrace. This was not a top 40 hit. But, you know, The Witch instills everything we're talking about with the Sonics. It's screaming. It's shouting. It's distorted guitar. It's distorted organ. It's... A song that the lyrics could easily be written by Joey Ramone, you know. Um, 
It doesn't really say a lot. It's angry nonetheless. You listen to it and you feel the emotions. It's a headbanger car with your windows in your car are down when that song comes on and you take your hand out and you bang the side of your Chevy Nova along to the song. That's the kind of song it is. They're 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 great rock and roll songs. There's only a few dozen songs that are you're gonna bang on the side of your car songs, and the witch is one of them. Wow. Were they a band like the Velvet Underground that influenced more artists than they sold records? Yes, over the course of their entire 60-year history. But at the time, hardly anybody even heard, saw this record. So it was a I Northwest. have no idea what the numbers are for what Here Are the Sonics sold when it first was out. Um, Buck Ornsby, who I knew pretty well, he died a few years ago, he, he, he didn't know. Um, but I'm guessing less than 10,000 copies. So the Velvet Underground, the story is it sold 1,000 copies and everybody that bought it started a band. Right. The Sonics, not so much. The record lived in obscurity and it was crusty old people from, you know, the Seattle ballroom scene of the 60s that knew it. But what happened is we wrote about it at the Rocket. Other people talked about it. There was kind of a legend to the record. Go track it down. It was like romancing the stone, for God's sakes. People were looking for these ancient ruins, essentially what this record was. And people that were into music tracked it down. Mark Arm tracked it down. Kurt Cobain tracked it down. DJs tracked it down. And the record became legendary years after its release. Did it inspire bands? Yes. But did it form make people start bands four years later? No. Do you come across people that have never heard of the band on, I, on a regular basis? I come across an amazing number of people who've never heard of the band. I think the story of the Sonics is a great story. I've tried to sell the idea of a book on it. Nobody in New York publishing, like, how many copies they sell? Well, hardly any. But Robert Plant would write the intro, for God's sakes. You know, you could find a lot of people to talk about their influence. But even to a degree today, the Sonics are still the best band from the Northwest no one's ever heard of. Um, and they're not the basketball team. That was writer Charles R. Cross speaking with KEXP's Marco Collins about the Sonics for our series called Northwest Classics. And as we continue to explore notable bands and albums that came from the Seattle region, it got us thinking, have you ever run into a Seattle celebrity? What happened? That was our listener question this week, and we got some pretty good responses. Hi, this is Gerilyn. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I have a story about my brush with Seattle. I was at Michigan State studying studio art, and it was probably 1991 and we were taking a break from a firing at the sculpture building. And we were sitting by the river, just kind of hanging out smoking. And this guy came through the trees and the bushes down and was like, hey, can I smoke with you? And we're like, sure. Didn't really know who he was. He didn't seem familiar, but seemed like a nice enough guy. 
period, nothing goes on. And later, I think it was a few days later, we heard about the concert that was at the theater next door, which was Red Hot Chili Peppers with a couple of new bands. One of them was uh, Smashing Pumpkins and the other one was Pearl Jam. I had never heard of Pearl Jam before. Can't remember exactly when I realized who it was that had come through the book, whether it was when I got my cassette tape of 10 or when I saw an article in the magazine. But I looked at the picture and I knew immediately that guy that came through the bushes that day was Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam and all I could do was laugh. And still to this day, I tell that story. My name is Bob Larson from Port Townsend, Washington. And in the late 90s, I used to hang out at my friend's house at 43rd and Francis in Fremont. People used to stop and park in front of our house and get coffee at Lighthouse, which was a half a block away. And we would get to know people and chat with them a bit. And this one gentleman would drive up every day about the same time and go and get eight coffees and then put them on the passenger side of his car and drive away. And, you know, through a couple of interactions, we started chiding him and and chatting and talking. And after several weeks, it turns out we were asking, you know, like, how come you don't have a coffee maker? Why don't you make coffee at home? How come you're always having to get coffee? And he goes into the, you know, he's got some friends over. He's, they're working on project and he just likes to go get coffee. It's his thing. And a couple more days go by and we started asking some more questions like, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. What are you doing? And he's like, oh, well, you know, we're. We're musicians, we're writing some new music and, and rehearsing. And so we just, you know, anything we might have heard of, and he, you know, slowly pauses and says, Well, Dave Matthews band. He's like, I'm Dave. And you could tell from the look on our faces and, and his expression that not that we weren't fans of his and you know, barely knew his music and but he was totally fine with it. And, you know, for a couple more weeks he kept showing up and getting coffee and hanging out and talking with us and just being a normal, everyday person. Hi, my name is Jules. I am from Bremerton, Washington. In the summer of 2003, I was working at Papyrus Stationery on 4th Avenue in downtown Seattle. It was a slow Saturday morning, and I was staring out the window. I noticed a very handsome man walk by. I took note that it was Chris Cornell. He came into the store and asked me for help finding a birthday card for his daughter. I walked him over to where the birthday cards were, and I gave him his privacy. I never wanted to let on that I knew that it was him. So I went back to staring out the window. My heart was beating so fast that Chris Cornell was in my store. And during the time that he was in the store, I noticed that no one else came in, which was just remarkable. I rang him up and again, at no time letting him know that I knew it was him. After he left, I stood back and I 
phoned a coworker and told her. I think there were a couple squeals. And I just, I still look back on that day in awe and gratitude that the Seattle music legend who I have liked since the 90s was standing right in front of me. Hey, this is Mark uh, from Seattle. This is about t- the year 2005. I was backpacking around Asia for six months with my wife. And uh, we are in Myanmar, and we're in the town of Mandalay. And there's a big hill there. You can climb up a bunch of steps up to a temple at the very top. You pass all these flower cellars and statues and relics and food stalls and stuff. You get to the top. So we're sitting up there resting, uh, enjoying the view. And this guy walks by. And I said to my wife, oh, my gosh, I think that was Mark Arm. She says, all right, you should go say hi to him. So I run after this guy. I'm following him. I'm kind of looking at him. And he's got on like these khaki pants and this safari vest and these, you know, travel shoes. And I'm just looking at him and thinking, there's no way that's him. This has to be some German tourist or something. So I just let him go on his way, came back and sat down. So then about a few months after we got home, Mudhoney's playing the crocodile and I'm in the front room between bands, and I see Mark Arm. So I go up to him and say, hey, Mark, uh, you don't know me, and this is going to sound a little weird, but were you in Myanmar a few months ago? And he looks at me kind of perplexed. He's like, yes. We got to talk about Myanmar for a few minutes, and um, that was my one brush with rock star stardom. By the way, our listener, Mark, that just told that story, he said he actually ran into Mark Arm of Mudhoney a third time while surfing on Washington's coast. So he ran into some surfer friends. They introduced them to their friend, Mark. And then listener Mark thought he looked familiar. And then later by the fire that night, he went over and asked, now, are you Mark, like the famous Mark, as in Mark Arm? And then Mark Arm said yes. Well, before we wrap up the show today, I will leave you with our final question. Why does music matter? Here's Nassim Black. If you watch a movie and you take out the music, you'll see how dumb the movie is. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Music covers up all their own doings. There's a quote, actually. I think it comes from King Solomon in the Bible. So most people that, you know, have no problem with the Bible says that love covers all wrongdoings. Music is love. Covers everything. Covers everything. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, a world without music is like a world without love, for sure. That was Sound and Vision. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It really makes a difference. You can also give a one-time $20 donation to this podcast at kexp.org slash sound. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll chat more next week.